I'm going to do Colossians 1, then I'm going to jump to Isaiah 35. So if you kind of want to have those in your mind. Um, But I'm going to read some stuff I've been writing, and then we'll get into that. Okay. As I look back on the past five years, I've asked myself and the Lord, what are some of the things that have marked us as a church? Marked us as a church. That list is beloved identity, uh, Zion, authenticity, and then challenging the status quo. Maybe that should actually be number one. But anyway, beloved identity, Zion, authenticity, and challenging the status quo. But when I think about or when we talk about the kingdom of God, we too often speak in terms of movement. So this is where I'm going to need your brain a little bit, all right? Need your brain. We speak, when we talk about the kingdom of God, I believe too often in terms of movement. And I'm beginning to learn that what we should more accurately speak in terms of is transformation. In other words, God replacing what is with what should be is how we commonly think of the kingdom invading, for example. So we pray for our cities and we want God's kingdom to replace the kingdoms of our city. But if we've learned anything over the past year and a half specifically, God has already redeemed the cosmos through Christ, which means the DNA of the kingdom is already present in our cities. So God does not long to do away with any part of his creation. He longs to see his creation become what it now is, which is reconciled and transformed. So Columbia doesn't necessarily need the kingdom to invade as much as it needs to be matured in the kingdom that it most truly is, which is God's. So for us to say Columbia shall be saved is not necessarily accurate. Columbia has been saved is very accurate. I don't need my city to be something that it is not currently I need my city to be what it actually is currently, which is the kingdom of God. And this is where the incarnation comes in so handy and brings so much context. And this is why I wanted to read something in my book, which is about the incarnation. Here we go. So this is from my new book. I just want to read this for you. Just kind of listen in on this. Where do we go now? We trek back to union. Uh, Sorry, let me go back. Let me go back. I want to make sure I'm reading this right. That was the last part of what I want to read. This is where I want to start. The vulnerability that God, from the beginning of Scripture, puts himself in to simply be with us and see to it that we are redeemed is appalling. The trust that God puts in his human agents is something we far too frequently skip over. The incarnation was not the first time God got vulnerable to cross humanity's handmade chasm. The incarnation was the first time God became the humanity that put the distance in place so as to destroy the distance from the other side. So, okay, one more time, one more time, one more time. If I stand up, y'all will get this a lot better. Okay. The incarnation was not the first time God got vulnerable in order to do something for humanity. This is from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God creating mankind in his image is God putting himself in a very vulnerable position that he's probably going to get hurt in. Okay? So this is not new. 
The incarnation, however, was the first time that God became that which he once was vulnerable to so that he could destroy the distance that man put in place from the other side, from the mankind side. So, before the incarnation, it was God continually calling mankind to destroy the distance. In the incarnation, he becomes mankind and destroys it from their side. Rather than overpower darkness with intense light, God, in the incarnation, became the darkness and turned the darkness itself into light. This means no matter how hard we try to live autonomously, there is no more death to rival life. There are now only faint shadows of what was that lie to us that death still has a grip. But death not only has no grip, death is utterly defeated. St. Athanasius says this in his writings on the Incarnation. The body of the Word, Jesus, then, being a real human body, in spite of its having been uniquely formed from a virgin was of itself mortal and, like other bodies, liable to death. But the indwelling of the Word loosed it from its natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Listen, this is early church father St. Athanasius. Thus is happened that two opposite marvels took place at once in the Incarnation. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body. Yet, because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. That is, that is deep. He says, by God being man... Two things happened at the same moment, at the same uh, place. That death happened on behalf of all, because he was man. And in the same breath, because that man was also the Word, death and corruption in the same moment that it was received on behalf of all was utterly abolished for all. So where do we go now? We trek back to union. We reach into the closed-off parts of who we are and let the incarnation fuse them into Christ once more. I'm going to stop right there. Darkness is not against light because darkness is a lie. Darkness has no power. The way that you transform darkness is not by power but by truth. Our city doesn't need to be told what it could be. It needs to be told what it is, that it has come into agreement against. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus accomplished all that he said he would accomplish, how does that reorient how we see the world? If Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do, which he did, how does that change how we see creation? People, people more specifically, but how does that change how we see the creation? How does it change our city? This is what Jesus said. This is what he said he came to do. I did not come to condemn the world. 
I didn't come to condemn the world. There goes half of Western theology right there. You know what I'm saying? We believe the wrath of God is, con- is God condemning the world. The only problem is, is God himself said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to make the world whole, save. Okay? So if Jesus accomplished all that he said he would do, and he made the world whole again, how does that reorient how we see the world? How does it reorient how we see the gospel? I'm going to explain all this. I know your brains are fried right now. The incarnation is both the problem and the solution to the gospel of the Western Bible Belt. It's both the problem and the solution. Because you must meet, for example, what about the blank person who has done blank? You must meet that with the fact that God not only became them in incarnation, but remains incarnate, which means he is still them. This is what John Calvin said. You ready? And so, okay, let's come at it from the other side. John Calvin said that in the incarnation, God became the mean and ignoble. In the incarnation, God became the worst of humanity just as much as the best of humanity. That's John Calvin. Okay? Which I've realized, as I've said, Calvinism has given John Calvin a really bad name. Because <laughs> he wouldn't disagree with half of what Calvinism believes. Just like Luther would disagree with half of what Lutherans believe. But anyway... Uh, if someone is to be rejected by God, we have to jump the hurdle of God also being inseparably joined to them in incarnation. Are you good? I know this is a lot. If, if we believe that God has the heart to reject, then we've also got to marry that with the idea of the incarnation, which is not only did God become them, He remains them if He remains fully God and fully man, which He does. God is, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, not just a ghost, as a man, which means mankind right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Which means now we've got to take all of the stuff that we have told the world around us, in the, specifically in the Bible Belt, about God's wrath and hatred and meanness and distance. And we've got to now marry that with what we also believe, which is the incarnation. And those two things do not work. Either God became mankind in the incarnation or the incarnation is false. You cannot believe both. You cannot believe in the incarnation and also believe that there is a God who hates 96% of the world's population that have never repeated a prayer. You can't believe both. You can't believe it. You either believe that He became flesh or He did not become flesh, but you can't believe both. And that's the problem with what we believe in the West right now is that we try to hold the incarnation, which is traditionally true, and we try to hold the gospel that we preach, which is not traditionally the gospel. And we try to marry those together, and they don't marry together, which is why the movement right now that is so powerful in the church is deconstruction. 
Everybody's deconstructing. Why? Because they repeated a prayer in a gospel that goes against the very gospel of the Word became flesh. I'm telling you, the incarnation has become outside of the Trinity. I know I just said this. Outside of the Trinity, it has become the most important thing in my walk with the Lord. Because every problem in the gospel can be answered by incarnation. All of them. What about this person? Incarnation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, he joined himself to us. Not while we were godly. Not when we were righteous. He became what we were in order to make us what he is. So if he became incarnate, if the word took on flesh while we were at our worst, that means there is no place we can run from union with that which became our worst. Do you see how this works? All right. Okay. This is perfection. And this is, I don't know, just, just dumb. Whatever you want to call the worst of whatever. Maybe I should write a political party. No. All right. So, right? This is perfection. If Jesus becomes this, any time in our lives that we slide below perfection, suddenly we disconnect from Christ. Right? But if he becomes this, there's nowhere to go but up. So at our worst, he became us. Hmm? At our worst, he became us. Now, I know I'm messing with y'all, but it's good. You need to be messed with. Okay. <clears throat> Are we powerful enough to tear ourselves from the joining of God to us, his creation? Are we now powerful enough to erase an image that we had no power to form? The image and likeness of God. You can believe that you bear any number of images, but at the end of the day, the only true image that you and I bear is His. You can say that you are whatever you want to say that you are, but at the end of the day, the truth is, and the only truth is, you are His. So you can run, you can deny, you can be an atheist, you can believe whatever you want to say, but at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, there is one image, and it's not the devil, and it's not whatever else, it is his that marks you. You were formed in your mother's womb with the image before you ever had an option to choose against the image. Uh, you can believe that you bear any number of things, but his is the only truth. Because man is the measure of all things in the Western Greco-American culture, of course we make man's choice the center of salvation. Here we, here we go. Y'all ready? Buckle up. Because man is the measure of all things. This is what Protagoras says. Okay, pro, pro, The pre-Socrates philosopher in Greek. American culture is, is stolen from Greece, okay? We love Greece. We love the Greeks. We love them. Everything we do bleeds Greek. We love it, right? Everything. And the Greek idea was this. In the center of the circle 
Oh, Lord, that's not even how you spell man. Good grief. In the center, thanks, of the circle is man. This is Western Thinking 101. If I was teaching a college class on Western Thinking, the first lesson would be man is the measure of all things. Right? How do we operate our economy? I get mine. You know what I'm saying? That's a, that's a, how do we operate politics? Not by truth. I get mine. So I'll lie as much as I need to lie as long as I win. Man's the measure of all things, okay, right? Which means if man's the measure of all things, what's included in all things? Of course, God. So in Western thinking, God is measured by man. In Western thinking, the image of God is in the image of man, right? So in Western thinking, where we like to do things like, and this isn't political, but where we like to, I don't know, drop bombs on people we don't like, right? Or where we like to uh, cancel people that we disagree with, right? God must also be in that same image who cancels people he disagrees with and drops bombs or wrath on people that he don't like, right? I mean, he is in our image, right? That's what uh, 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 Blaise Pascal said. God created man in his image and man returned the favor, okay? So in this scenario right here, salvation is not God's doing. God simply opened the door for man, who is the measure of all things, to do salvation. Let me say it like this. In our current way of thinking, God and what he did on the cross is a footnote to the decision of you and I. So we'll get in services and we'll say, if you would like to be saved, repeat this prayer. Right? Or if you need to be saved, do this. In other words, for you to be saved, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Which means you bring about your own salvation. Right? That's what we think. We, I mean, mass cru- we have mass crusades. And we give people doom and gloom... And say, you know, if you get hit by a bus, then where are you going to be? Are you going to burn in the fires of hell and all that other stuff, right? And then we don't celebrate Halloween, and we don't have Christmas trees at Christmas and all that stuff. And then we say, come on and join this. This is amazing. Or you'll burn in hell, right? That's what we say. And when we do that, we're making man the measure of the gospel. And we don't even know it. Well, let me take that back. We do know it. And it, you know what it does? It makes us this right here. And as long as we're raking in the money, we don't, who cares about the gospel? We'll leverage the gospel. You know what I'm saying? Right? No. Here's the truth. Let me teach you a little Eastern philosophy. God is the measure of all things, including man. And salvation is God's choice more than it's man's choice. You ready? I'm telling you, this goes so against... That people are going to call me a heretic, they've already done it, and that's okay. I I literally don't care. But man's decision is a footnote to the decision of God, not God's decision a footnote to the decision of mankind. So you and I joining ourselves to salvation is not you and I being saved. It's you and I coming into agreement of God's decision to save. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. Through who? Through him the world would be saved. This is basic gospel. This is gospel 101, foundational milk stuff, and it sounds off. What I'm saying right now probably hits you in a very weird way, which is the point, and that alone testifies to how far we've gotten to basic gospel. I mean, this is, this is, this is basic. It was Jesus that met us in our darkness and turned it into light. It was not us. He gave us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do it ourselves, and we didn't. And even the reason he gave us the law was so that the trespass might increase, so that we might see that we could not do this on our own, so that we could see that man being in the center of all things goes very wrong. This is, all right, here we go. This is what the law did. This is how we think. The law said, all right, if man's going to be in the middle of it, here's this and 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 this. And there's all these laws that you need to keep in order for you to be right if you're going to be in the middle of it. Now, why would God do that? Because he knew there's not a chance in Hades that we were going to keep the law. He knew that. And he gave it to us knowing that so that when we realized, now wait a minute, I can't do this. Jesus stepped into the picture and he did this right here. And he said, let's do this. Let's put God back in the middle and man back on the fringes. And I give you a new law, love, which is agape, which is to what? Prefer. Prefer what? The one in the middle. It took us five years, but we're here. We're finally in a place that we've broken out of the Bible Belt religious mold and received kingdom eyes to see what's actually been here all along. My uh, Jordan does this, and she gets so frustrated with me all the time. Jordan will say, uh, Josh, can you go get you know milk out of the fridge, Right? If you're a guy, you do this too. And you'll go and you'll open the fridge and you'll stare and you'll stare and you'll look and you'll move stuff around and you'll get frustrated and then you'll go back and say, we don't have any milk. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't find the milk. We don't have any milk, right? And then she'll be like, no, I just bought milk. It's in there. No, I just looked. It's not in there. And so I'll go back and look again. Don't see it. Well, then she'll come in, open the fridge, and it'll literally be right there on the front shelf. You know what I mean? Right? We, so we do this all the time. That right there, that is Western gospel. That you can be staring and staring. And I, I just don't see it. You know what I mean? I, I, just, I just don't, I don't. It doesn't make any sense. I don't see it. And for the past five years, the Lord has almost been like, it's, it's, it's right there on the shelf. It's right there. Here it is. Here it is. We have a cross on our stake. There it is. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like we're, cele- we're about to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> Here it is, you know? And for, like, I just, that just doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me. Repeated, repeated prayer, that, that sounds a lot more accurate. 
where's the verse for that? Just don't worry about it. You know what I mean? King, it's in the King James. Really? You know? Yeah? You know what I'm saying? And, um, and so anyway, but, th- but this, is, this is what is the gospel. This is what we've, we, we've been born for. And the same goes for our city. It's not what man has done or is doing that defines our city. It is what God has done that defines our city. Now, ready? This is the biggest thing I think I've ever said. Listen, evangelism is not teaching humanity to choose salvation. Evangelism is announcing that God has chosen humanity in salvation. One more time. One more time for everybody listening to this that's going to send me an email. You ready? Just to repeat it so you get it in good, good, uh, good quote in the text. Evangelism is not teaching humanity to choose salvation. Evangelism is announcing that God has chosen humanity in salvation. And so you don't save yourself. You simply realize, I have been made whole. And when you realize that, suddenly... You begin to live like the kingdom. The gospel for the early church radically transformed everything about them to the point that they were willing to die for their faith. Why? Because they were living in a Roman culture that promised all of this amazing stuff to them. And it wasn't that they were rejecting that culture, praying for a a heavenly distant world that they would uh, attach themselves to one day when Jesus either came back or when they died. That wasn't it. The reason they were so convinced to the point of death is because they believed that when Jesus said, I have come to make all things whole, that he actually did it, even to the point where you cannot take, they would say, you cannot take my life because he is the one who holds all life. And even if you take it, we are confident that he will raise us up again in resurrection. And that's the early church gospel. They didn't believe they were going to escape by death. They were so convinced that he had done what he said that they knew even in death he would redeem it physically in resurrection. The hope of their salvation was not a distant heaven. The hope of their salvation was resurrection and heaven present. You see what I'm saying? That we've got to get these terminologies out of our brain. Heaven is not a distant euphoria. You know what I'm saying? Heaven is God's space. Where God is, heaven is. If God is with us and among us, then guess what's also with us and among us? Heaven. That doesn't mean that when you die, you're not going to go to heaven. It just means we've got to get this idea that death is almost a type of salvation out of our head and realize we were designed for heaven now. So when we die, all we're doing is transforming into a deeper dimension of what we've had our entire lives, which is heaven. You know what I'm saying? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, not distant, at hand. This is why in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Why is that so big? Remember the Roman culture that Jesus was born into was a Greco-Roman culture. It was born from Greek. And what was the Greeks? Man 
is in the center of the circle. So when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, it wasn't in a list like this. God, family, church, you know, whatever. This, that, this, this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a circle that God is the circle. Or we might even say this, that God is the center of. So if you'll seek putting God where Greco-Roman culture has told you to put man, God will give you everything as a result. In other words, they believe, just like we believe, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that you were capable of doing anything that you wanted to do with your life. Which, again, is not a bad thing. But what they meant was, for example, in America, if you start a business and it does really well and you work really hard, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to provide for yourself, right? That's a great thing. But man, in that situation, in the Greek-Roman culture, was the provider. So you have to work and work and work and work and work and work and work to receive all things. Jesus said, no, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all things will be given to you. And that passage is in the context of this. Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, tomorrow will take care of itself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all that stuff will be inherited. You know what I'm saying? And he's saying, Rome taught you that you've got to be in the middle of the story, which sounds amazing. But it causes you to lose your rest in the process. You weren't designed to be in the middle of the story. When you are in the middle, Lord, I've got so many circles up here. When you are in the middle of the circle, do you know what you have to do? You have to play God. Because this is God's spot, not yours. God is the only one who is capable of being in the circle. You're called to receive from that which is in the circle. You're not called to be the one that everything revolves around. And so when you're in the middle and everything revolves around what you do from your power, from your talent, suddenly you get the opportunity to play the role of God. How does that work? Never good, right? Never good. That's why we say all the time, Hollywood is full of stars making millions and millions of dollars and miserable out of their mind. All miserable like nobody's business. Why? Because you're not designed to be in the middle of the story. You're designed to put God in his place and inherit all things. And when you inherit all things, you do it in rest, and suddenly you have both provision and rest, and you're not losing your mind. You're able to leverage what God has given you into what it's supposed to be, which is kingdom. All right, all right, all right, all right. So here we go. Let me read uh, Colossians 1, 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. Very familiar to us, but I just felt like it was, uh, we, needed, we needed it today. The supremacy of Christ. He is the image. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. I could preach 47 sermons off of that. Okay? What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? The image of the Son who is the firstborn of all creation. Listen. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. In him. 
things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want you to see how Paul uses all things over and over and over and over. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. In everything. There it is, the circle. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you were once estranged, excuse me, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed, listen, to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Whoo! Huh? Paul? Huh? All right, man, I'd love to just mark that name out right there and say, Josh. I, Josh, have become a servant of that gospel. A couple of things. He's pointing out a specific gospel, which means there's already at this time multiple versions of this gospel floating around. Okay? And what he is putting here is he's putting in this, in this set of verses, he's reorienting all things in Christ. And that's the gospel that he is a servant of. He's reorienting all things in Christ. All things, according to Paul, are measured by Christ. And what does that go against? the mindset that all things are measured by man. So Paul is going against Greek thinking, but he's also going against other gospel thinking that's floating around that says things like, Jesus was just a good man, this Arianism. Jesus is just a good man, but he really wasn't God. He was created by God to do something really good. That was the widespread belief when Athanasius was alive. You know what I mean? So he's going against all these different streams, and he says, here's how we're going to fix all the streams at once. We've got to take everything, every power, dominion, ruler, all things created in the heavens and the earth, everything, everywhere that exists, we've got to place that in and for and through Christ. And if we do that, suddenly we have the right gospel. All things in Christ. And here's what, here's what the message is today, okay? Here's what the message is. We have to, if we believe the gospel, let me tell you, if we believe the gospel that Paul believed, I'd be real scared if you believe a gospel that Paul did not believe, <laughs> okay? I mean, I'd be real, real scared if you believe a different type of gospel. But if we believe the gospel that the early church believed, then all things must be in and through and for Christ. 
not just some things. And Paul even goes a step further and says, I'm not even talking about things that are visible. I'm talking about even the invisible things, the things that you don't see. So start going down that list. Like, what are some of the things that we place against God that are invisible? Paul is saying that stuff you have to put in Christ if you believe the gospel that I believe. Okay? So he puts all things... In Christ. For, through, and in. Now, here's why that's big. Is because now, if we believe the gospel, okay, we've got to now go into the world, or whatever you, into the cosmos, whatever you want to call it. And we now have to change how we see everything to see all of those things first in Christ. So it's really difficult to hate someone, even if you disagree with them, if they too are in Christ. Jesus said it like this, what you do to them, you do to me. Which is why we're called to love our enemies. Love our enemies. Is because even the worst of who we are, Christ still became. So what you do to not, listen, not just others, but what you do to anything in the creation that does not go in, through, and for Christ, suddenly you're stepping outside of what the gospel is. Okay? But not just that. Let me read Isaiah 35 to you real quick, and then we'll be done. Isaiah 35. Very familiar, but now I want you to think about this as I'm reading this, okay? I want you to notice all of this happening in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Exodus language. Check this out, Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong and don't fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. Okay, that phrase right there, I won't get into that today. Um, that's a really amazing phrase in Hebrew. We'll talk about that another day. Anyway. He will come to save you. It, it carries the idea, just to give you a little taste, it carries the idea of, of the zeal of God. So um, he will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. Hebrew terrible is different. Like our, If I say the word terrible, it's like, oh, man, that's, that's terrible. That's awful. You know what I mean? Terrible in a Hebrew is like a, it's a depth of, of reverence. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, just a very, but anyway, so if you want to go home and study that, that'd be a cool little study for you. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. The water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become like a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, okay? Or, in the haunt of jackals is her resting place, is the alternative translation there. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now listen. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. Now, here's what I want to focus on. 
the unclean shall not travel on it. Alternative translation. The unclean shall not pass it by. No traveler, not even full, excuse me, but it shall be for God's people. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Huh? Listen to this. The unclean shall not travel on it. Would you not naturally assume that the unclean are the fools? In the text, right? The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. Immediately, in the Western way that we think, immediately we've just put groups of people in two separate categories. In that verse. Immediately when you read that, listen, it happens without you even noticing it. it you just did it. You didn't even think about it. In that moment, when I read that verse, here's what you said. Here's the unclean. And here's God's people. And they're two separate categories. And so you probably want to be in this group. Because this group obviously is not going to find the way. Right? We just naturally did that. Because we're Western. But then it says, No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Astray from what? The highway of holiness that's in the wilderness. Interesting. Okay? Because you would think that this, these people are fools, right? The unclean are the fools. So in one section it says, The unclean shall not travel by it. Two lines down it says, Not even the fools shall go astray from it. Interesting. I'll get back to it. No lions shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed, the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Are you thinking about this? You thinking about it? Now, just back up. Remember, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are fearful of heart, be strong and do not fear. Here's your God. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the speechless sing. Okay, in this, what would, if you know anything about what we've been teaching lately, now I'm almost done, what would the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the speechless represent? The unclean. In fact, in that day and in fact, in Jesus' time, even later than this, they believed that if you were born uh, blind, deaf, lame, or speechless, okay, if you were born that way, it was because your parents or you were unclean. So before we get to the highway, here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 35. This oracle originally belonged to a group of, uh, of uh, prophecies um, called the Exilic Collection, okay? And uh, you don't have to know this, but anyway, now it's, chapter, now it's generally considered to be chapter 40 through 55. 
Um, but originally, this Isaiah 35 belonged to that which was possibly and probably written in exile. Okay, So, before we get to the highway, the eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless begins to sing for joy. If you are blind and deaf and lame, and it's because you're unclean, what does it mean if you're no longer blind, deaf, and lame? That you're clean. The highway shall be there. It shall be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for God's people. And God's people within them, not even fools shall go astray. Why? Because the redeemed walk there, the ransomed of the Lord return from there and go to Zion with singing. Here's what Isaiah is talking about. Not two different groups. It's the same group of people. The Israelites, if you've ever read Isaiah in a whole, the Israelites are the ones, and Jesus even mentions this later, that the Israelites are the ones who are blind and deaf and lame. Why? Because they've turned away from the Lord. But he says there's going to be a way made in the wilderness. But before you walk across that way, I'm going to make you who are unclean, clean. And by being clean, you will once again be my people. Now with that in mind, let me read it. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the speech will sing for joy, waters break forth, streams in the desert, burning sand a pool, thirsty ground springs of water, the haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, the grass shall become reed and rushes. There will be a highway there, it shall be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel by it. Why? Because before there's ever a highway, I'm going to make that which is unclean, clean. So the reason the unclean will not walk on this way is not because there's two groups of people. One group, the unclean, is kept from the way. It's because I've taken the entirety of my people who have made themselves unclean, and I have first made them clean so that all of them might walk by the way of holiness. The unclean shall not travel by it, but it shall be for God's people. Okay? No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Why? Because they have been redeemed. And to make it even more clear, make it even more clear, there will be no lion there, no ravenous beast. They shall not be found there. But the what? Redeemed shall walk there. Redeemed from what? Being unclean to clean. That's not enough. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing. The word redeemed there could also be translated like this. Those who have been bought back. Bought back. The ones who have been bought back shall walk there. And the word ransom there could also be the word redeemed. Redeemed. 
And, and this is the gospel. So when we start talking about things like uh, in, our, in our culture right now, um, the Christians and non-Christians. You know what I'm saying? There is absolutely a group of people, a remnant, that are following Jesus, and everyone needs to follow Jesus, okay? And that's the, when you start talking about this gospel, you'll start hearing people say things like, does that mean you can just do whatever you want? Which is exactly what Paul had to deal with, because if you go to Romans 6, here's the first verse of Romans 6. Should we just keep sinning till our hearts are condensed so that grace may abound? The same question that you ask when we start talking about this gospel is the same question that the Romans asked when Paul was talking about his gospel. Should we just keep sinning now? I mean, if, if, he, if, he, if one died for all, should we, just keep, should we just keep sinning? I mean, we can just do whatever we want, right? And Paul says, certainly not. Why on God's green earth would you live dead when you've been given life? That's dumb. That's stupid. There's no kids in Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We don't like saying that in our house. That why on earth, when you've been given your rightful life back out of no choice of your own, why on earth would you live dead? You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's, so, so it's just like this. Jesus died for those who do drugs. Okay? Let me just break it real basic for you. If you have done meth, Christ died for you. Does that mean that you should just keep doing meth because it's all been forgiven? Absolutely not. Why? Because it will kill you. So why shouldn't you just leap around till your heart's content because I've been forgiven by God? I mean, if you've been forgiven, why not? Because, because why would you live dead when you've been given life? So it's not about what you say no to in order to be saved. It's about what you say yes to because you've been saved. So if I'm waiting around, obviously I'm not, but if I was waiting around for a spouse, why on earth would I reserve my body for my future spouse? Not because God's going to burn with anger and I'm going to burn in hell if I don't do it, but because I'm in the image and likeness of a God that reserved his body for me. Huh? So why on earth would I prostitute myself to something worthless and cheap when I've been given access to a life where immense value has been placed not only on me, but on the one that I'm going to be a spouse for one day? Do you see what I'm saying? So it's not about me saying no to the wrong things. It's about me saying yes to the right things. And that's the art the church has told people for you. You better not look at bad things on the computer because if you do, God's wrath will burn against you. And guess what they all did? Kept looking at things on the computer. You know what I mean? Because Lord, there's grace. There's grace. Instead, instead, we should have said, why would you settle for that junk when you're going to have access to the real thing if you'll just wait a little bit? Because let me let, just speak for me. The real thing makes the fake thing look like nothing. Okay? But, but this, is, this is how we have seen the gospel as this big dividing line that says you've got to do this and this to be on this side or else you're on this side. And we've completely in the process, we didn't even know it, we completely in the process negated the fact that all sides are found now in Christ. And so now it's not about, in fact, Paul even says this, that he has destroyed the dividing wall that separated us. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, 
I don't know how many verses we have to go through in Scripture, because I would love to go through them all. How many verses do we have to go through till we get to the point where we actually start to see, wait a minute, maybe something happened in Christ that's way bigger than I ever thought. Isaiah, can you hop up here? I'm going I'm to read this last, this last portion. This last portion. I have to read a lot of Scripture because some of y'all go home and be like, um, he's, he's, I don't know what he just said. Must be a new thing. New thing. I never thought I would see the day. Um, well, I guess I should have assumed. never thought I'd see the day. The closer you get to the original gospel, the more church people would, would hate your gospel. Um, Salah. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? All right, well, brother, you're telling people they can do whatever they want. Actually, I'm saying the opposite. Um, this, is, this is how the story ends, okay? This is the end of Isaiah, and then we'll wrap it up. This is how the story ends. Isaiah 62. For Zion, listen, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until what? Her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. Listen to this. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name. Who is he talking to? Those who are just the most righteous people on earth that have never turned away from God? No, he's talking to people who are in exile because they've rejected God. You shall be called by a new name, listen, that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And you shall no longer be called forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. You shall, listen, Columbia. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. And do you know what the word that is used for my delight is in her and married? For specifically married. For and your land married. Do you know what that word is? Beulah. Beulah. Y'all remember in church growing up, we used to sing the song, Beulah Land, I'm longing for you. And someday on thee I'll stand. We're talking about heaven. Beulah land, heaven. Beulah land is not heaven. Beulah land is here. It's your land. This land shall be called Beulah. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Beulah. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. This is unbelievable. Listen to this. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have posted sentinels all day and all night. They shall never be silent. You who remain the Lord, excuse me, you who remind the Lord, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes its renown throughout the earth known. 
the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in my holy course. Now listen. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Here, Isaiah 35. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, and lift up a sign over the people. The Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Now, the entire earth is included in this. Has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your salvation, what? Comes. And his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Listen, this is my favorite. And you shall be called salt out a city not forsaken. See, your salvation comes and his reward with him and his recompense before him. They shall be called a holy people redeemed of the Lord and you shall be called salt out, a city not forsaken. Not forsaken. This is the gospel. This is what you and I believe in. If you follow Jesus, this is what you follow. You follow a God that said, I refuse to leave you in a place where you believe that you have been forsaken. You have never been forsaken. You have never been left in your worst moment. I met you there. I became your uncleanliness so that you could become clean. Why? Not because of what you've done, but because of my desire for my kid. That's it. It's God's desire alone that brought you home, not yours. My daughter, listen to this. We were in, uh, where were we? Target. We were in Target. Worst place you could go at this time of year. Because you can just feel your bank account draining. Um <laughs> especially when you walk in the Christmas section. Anyway, and, um, and so we were in Target, and uh, I thought Jordan was watching Veda while I was, we had to get a Christmas tree, our lights went out anyway, the whole thing. So, um, so I was getting the tree, and I thought Jordan was watching Veda. Well, she thought she was getting the lights that we were gonna put on the tree. Life hack. Okay, if you're buying a fake tree, um, Buy one without the lights so that when the lights go out, you can simply replace the lights for $5 instead of the tree for $200. So anyway, little life hack. Um, but so she was getting the lights. So she thought Veda was with me. I thought Veda was with her. And I turn around and I look at her and Veda's not there. And it, that's like, if you're a parent, y'all, you know, that's when it's just like your heart just sinks. Okay. Here's what I did. And Jordan doesn't even know this. She, she wasn't even present while I was doing this. I forgot to tell her about it. Um, but here's what I did. I had this Christmas tree in my hand. 
I drop the tree. I leave my phone that has my wallet on it in the shopping cart. And I start going in a very hurried pace to find her. Now, she was just around the corner. It's like she was still there. Okay, I just didn't see her. So it was quick to find her. So I took her back to Jordan, and I was like, hey, watch her a second. I'm going to go get the tree. And I walked back to get the tree, and it hit me that that fervency, when I thought my daughter was lost, even though she was the one that walked away, not me, she chose to walk away from our side. So if we're doing the morality thing, she deserved to remain lost because she chose to be lost, right? But none of us believe that because the DNA of the gospel is in every one of us. So we'll say and believe things that if you start getting down to the basic of it, you don't actually believe. If you believe that God will live without any of his kids, then I want to ask you a question. One day when you're a parent, you'll really get this. Would you live without any of your kids if they did anything to you? If you had a daughter and a son, and let's say, in God's case, trillions of daughters and sons, if they spit in your face and left, would you just say, fine then, I'm just going to let you go and live without you? Absolutely not. Because the gospel is written on the inside of every human being. Eternity is on the heart of every man. So I dropped what I was doing and I searched her out until I found her. And that is the gospel. That God refused to let what he had going on that was way more important with all these people that he could theoretically live without because he's God, right? Just like me and Jordan could theoretically move on without Veda. You know what I mean? Like we would have just as much of a relationship with or without. But we refuse to do that because there's a love on the inside of us that says, not because of what she's done, simply because we created her out of desire And that desire has placed a fervency on the inside of me and Jordan to make sure we do not go one day the rest of our lives without the daughter that was created out of desire. She didn't do anything. She did nothing to be our daughter. We made her our daughter out of desire to have a daughter. That's it. And it is that desire alone that keeps her in the circle. It's that desire alone that keeps you in the circle. However, when she chooses to live out our desire over her, it suddenly begins to create a fusion of love in our family that can be seen by anybody else around us. So she absolutely needs to make the decision to live within our desire, but it is not her choice that keeps her as one who is desired. Does that make sense? And, and the problem with teaching a lot of this is that everything that I'm talking about today goes against what is natural for you and I because we grew up thinking that way. So you're going to go home, and on the way home, you're going to have all this conglomerate of stuff all tangled up. And at some point this week, hopefully, you're going to attempt to pull it all apart. But I promise you, when you start getting to the foundation of a God, listen, that says... If you know you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, 
how much more does your heavenly Father know? How much more will your heavenly Father give you his own spirit when you ask him? Y'all bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you that, that you are revealing a gospel to us. I mean, I, that, goes, that goes against the status quo. Sometimes, as we saw in the Reformation 500 years ago, sometimes some things need to be challenged. And I think what needs to be challenged in us, and listen, what, what we're not talking about is who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That, 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 that has nothing to do, we're not talking about that. That's, that's a very Western way of thinking. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. God can handle that. I'm not God. God can handle who goes where. I'm just telling you the gospel is, is that when we were at our worst, here's how God responded to that. He became our worst so that from that side of the equation, he could transform it. He didn't try to overpower us with light. He became our darkness and turned our darkness into his own light. Creation is not evil. Genesis 1 says creation is good. So if anything in creation looks evil, it's not because it is. It's because it's refusing to live in what it really is, which is good. And Romans 8 says this, that all of creation is yearning and standing on tiptoe, waiting for sons and daughters of God to be manifested so that with us it might experience freedom from its decay. So creation looking like it does right now and the world around us looking like it does right now is, is listen, solely, solely, solely a result, not of the devil, of sons and daughters not being fully manifest yet. So how do we transform the world around us? By being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Romans 8 tells us, that if we could be manifested as the sons and daughters of God, then creation would, as a byproduct of our transformation, be transformed into freedom from its own decay. What, what if, you ready to get real weird? What if the answer to global warming, or what if the answer to ozone layers, listen, I, I, think, we sh I think we should do everything we can to take care of our creation, but what if the answer to all of that is simply sons and daughters being manifest in the image of their God. Like, what if the answer to our politics situation right now is not getting another party in there that stands in the middle? Although that probably wouldn't be too bad. But, but what if the answer to our politics situation right now is simply sons and daughters being manifest in the image of God rather than the image of a, of a party? You have churches all over the country right now bringing in politicians to tell everybody who they should vote for. And the reason they're doing it is because guess what they get from these politicians if they get elected? It's the same thing that businesses do. It's the same thing. You pump a bunch of money into this candidate, and then when that candidate gets elected, you get a bunch of tax benefits. I mean, this is the same thing. This is what the, the church has become a pawn in a big old game. And, and the people of God have become so delusional 
and so gullible that we support it and buy into it. We'll follow it on social media and like it and comment on it and praise hand on it all day long. We're clueless about what's happening to the kingdom of God. But I'm telling you, if, if we begin to trumpet the original, the full gospel that Paul gave his life for and every other early church apostle other than John that survived martyrdom and died an old man, other than him, all of them gave their lives for this gospel. All of them gave their lives for a gospel that looked into the eyes of those who were about to pull them apart by horses. And I can imagine, can you imagine Peter as he's getting crucified on a cross that was shaped like an X? It would have looked like an X. And he says, I'm not worthy to die in the same way Jesus died. You're going to have to crucify me upside down. But, but I can't prove this, but I want you to hear the power in this. What kind of power? Because there's church, there's stories like this in the early church all the, all, all the way through. What kind of power would there be when Peter looks into the eyes of the Roman soldier who was about to nail him to a cross upside down and him look at him and say, you're included too. That's exactly what Jesus did. He looked at the eyes of those, I said this last week, at the eyes of those who had just nailed him to a cross and he said, Father, forgive them. You're included too. I mean, there is some power in that gospel that we have never even known because we've been so busy trying to separate people into all these different categories. Problem is, the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. There, there's one humanity, one new humanity now in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray that as we leave this place, we'll begin to see ourselves as joined in you. We'll begin to see those around us as joined in you. We'll begin to see the creation as joined in you. Our jobs as joined in you. Our schools, all of it, as joined in and through and for Christ. And I promise you, we're going to start seeing transformation in our, in our culture happen. The enemy has had his crosshairs aimed at this. Here's the issue. Here's the solution, I guess. It's all a lie. You know the thoughts I've battled over this year? You're not going to be provided for. This isn't going to work. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the real gospel. You can't do church like this in the South. No one cares. These are the thoughts that I've battled this year. You are doing something that the South does not want. This is impossible. I mean, these are the thoughts. Here's the thing. Every one of those thoughts, guess what they are? Lies. You won't be provided for. Well, we've been abundantly provided for every single moment to this moment right here. That makes that a lie. And so I'm just, I'm just going to encourage you. Those of you that are battling things right now, those of you that have thoughts, those of you that have maybe slid in this place where you feel kind of um, like the, your relationship with the Lord has, has dried up a little bit. It has not. 
it has not dried up. All you have to do is open yourself up to an idea of Jesus that is going to blow your mold away. And if you'll do that, I promise you there won't be another day the rest of your life that you live dry. So God, we drink deep of you. We drink deep of this gospel. And it's in your name we pray, amen.